This is VOA News via Ramon. I'm Tommy McNeil. A U.S. federal judge has declined to delay the upcoming trial of Steve Bannon, an advisor to former U.S. President Donald Trump, who faces contempt of Congress charges after refusing for months to cooperate with the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Bannon is still scheduled to go on trial next week. That's despite telling the House committee late Saturday that he is now prepared to testify. At a news conference, Steve Schoen, a lawyer for Steve Bannon, says his client has been consistent with what he would do. It is unclear whether Bannon will again refuse to appear before the committee with the trial pending. The U.S. District Judge Carl Nichols also ruled against several requests by Bannon's attorneys to uh, seek the testimony of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi or the committee chairman, Representative Benny Thompson of the U.S. State of Mississippi. The White House on Monday said that it believes that Russia is turning to Iran to provide it with hundreds of unmanned aerial vehicles, including weapons-capable drones for use in its ongoing war in Ukraine. The U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that it was unclear whether Iran had already provided any of the unmanned systems to Russia, but then said that the U.S. has information that indicates Iran is preparing to train Russian forces to use them as soon as this month. More at VOANews.com. This is VOA News. Days after former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's assassination, his party vowed to use its victory in a parliamentary election to achieve his unfinished goals, including strengthening the military and revising the country's pacifist post-war constitution. While the comfortable majority secured Sunday by the governing Liberal Democratic Party and its junior coalition party, more partner Kamido, uh, could allow Prime Minister Fumio Kishida to rule uninterrupted until a scheduled election in 2025. The loss of Abe also opened up a period of uncertainty for his party. The promised constitutional amendment, for one, faced an uphill battle. In a country where gun crime is vanishingly rare, Abe's shooting took the, shook the nation, and Japanese flocked to a Buddhist temple Monday to mourn their former leader while police looked into a possible motive. Kishida, meanwhile, welcomed his party's victory, but also acknowledged that it was entering a new era without the towering politician, who even after resigning as prime minister in 2020 remained a force in the party and national politics. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky criticized Canada on Monday over its decision to allow a gas turbine to be delivered to Germany to help solve technical problems cited by a Russian energy provider over the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. VOA's Diane Roberts. During his evening address Monday, Zelensky said he had summoned Canada's ambassador to the country for discussions due to the, quote, absolutely unacceptable exception to the sanctions regime against Russia, end quote. He added, quote, if a terrorist state can squeeze out such an exception to sanctions, what exceptions will it want tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, end quote. Meanwhile, in eastern Ukraine, the focal point for a grinding Russian offensive, the number of people dead from a weekend attack in the town of Chasovyar in the Donetsk region rose to 30, according to emergency services. 
Deadly Russian rocket strikes Monday slammed Kharkiv, the country's second city, in a targeted attack on a shopping center and civilian residences, according to the regional chief. I'm Diane Roberts, VOA News. The Biden administration is telling hospitals that they must provide abortion services if the life of a mother is at risk. It says federal law and emergency treatment guidelines preempt state laws and jurisdictions that now ban the procedure without any exceptions following the Supreme Court's decision to end the constitutional right to abortion last month. The Department of Health and Human Services on Monday cites the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. It requires medical facilities to determine whether a person seeking treatment may be in labor or whether they face an emergency health situation or one that could develop into an emergency and provide treatment. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil. VOA News. Today is Tuesday, July 12th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedo for in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour. Russia's president fast-tracks citizenship to all Ukrainians as Kyiv prepares offensive to retake captured coastal towns. The big mystery right now is where are the Ukrainian reserves? Is the Ukrainian army just able to sustain itself or is it growing larger? Sri Lanka's cabinet resigns as the opposition continues talks on forming a new government. After a weekend of turmoil in Sri Lanka's capital, Colombo, the Prime Minister's office on Monday confirmed President Gotabaya Rajapaksa and the entire cabinet will resign and make way for a unity government. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's successor to be announced on September 5th. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Russian President Vladimir Putin has expanded a fast-track procedure to give Russian citizenship to all Ukrainians. It's another effort to expand Moscow's influence over war-torn Ukraine. But while Ukraine prepares for a potential offensive to retake coastal towns, a former senior U.S. intelligence official says it is the Russians who have the advantage as they push into more of eastern Ukraine. Phil Wasilewski, a national security fellow at the Philadelphia-based Foreign Policy Research Institute, has been studying the capabilities of Russia and Ukraine to keep fighting after months of full-scale war. Flashpoints Ukraine's Michael Lipping asked him which of the two sides is better positioned to do that. The big mystery right now is where are the Ukrainian reserves? Is the Ukrainian army just able to sustain itself or is it growing larger? And this is very hard to determine from open source reporting because of good Ukrainian operational security, or as they say, OPSEC in the military. And by the way, good on the Ukrainians. On the Russian side, it's interesting that from open sources, we have better indications, including from Russian sources. It is clear that the Russian army is suffering problems of morale. However, despite this, it does seem that they have been able to recruit anywhere, depending on the numbers, between 30 and 50,000 people to make replacements of those losses. The problem with this, however, is not just the numbers, but how long they're being recruited for, their motivations, the support, the logistics, what leadership there will be. The same applies also to the Ukrainian side, but maybe more so in the Russians because it demonstrated problems to date with leadership and logistics and with unit morale, and the fact that we've already seen numerous combat refusals by Russian troops on the front line. So only 
time and combat will answer the question you ask. Given these challenges that you say both Ukraine and Russia are facing militarily, what are they now trying to achieve from this war and how divergent are their aims? I believe that based on the best evidence available now, Russia's intermediate war aims are to seize the Donetsk and Luhansk oblast in their entirety and annex occupied Ukrainian territory from Mariupol to Kherson directly into the Russian Federation to create a land bridge to Crimea. And this interesting uh, secretary of the Russian National Security Council, Petrusha, has made comments about Russia continuing the war to the end. And meaning that its ultimate war aim is the destruction of Ukrainian national identity and Ukraine as a viable independent state. That is the ultimate Russian war aim. Ukraine, Ukrainian war aims are relatively simple and they've been announced by their senior policy officials, including their foreign minister. And that is the restoration of their territorial integrity, including the borders uh, before 2014, when the Crimea was illegally annexed and the separatist areas in Donetsk and Luhansk were broken away from them. So as you can see, with these two competing war aims, there is not much of a chance for a negotiated settlement. That's Phil Wasilewski, a national security fellow at the Philadelphia-based Foreign Policy Research Institute, speaking with Flashpoint Ukraine's Michael Lipping. The Prime Minister's office in Sri Lanka said on Monday that President Gotabaya Rajapaska and the entire cabinet will resign to make way for a unity government. This after tens of thousands of protesters stormed the official residences of both men. Laila Shakaroshaki of Reuters reports. After a weekend of turmoil in Sri Lanka's capital, Colombo, the Prime Minister's office on Monday confirmed President Gotabaya Rajapaksa and the entire cabinet will resign and make way for a unity government. Speaking for the first time since anti-government protesters stormed the President and Prime Minister's official residences, Prime Minister Ranul Wickram Singer also said he would step down. They came and burnt my house. Not only that, they have taken over the President's house, the President's office and temple trees, the Prime Minister's official residence. They have misplaced all the documents. A government must work in accordance with the law. Also, we must work according to the Constitution. We are not going to work outside of the Constitution. You cannot pressure Parliament from outside to do things. I am here to protect the Constitution, to listen to people's views while protecting the Constitution. What we need today is an all-party government, and I will work towards achieving it. Opposition leader Sajith Pramadasa said the government and its leaders no longer had the people's mandate and said he was ready to form a new government. Sri Lanka's financial crisis is deepening and the protesters have said they won't leave until both men officially quit. Many are worried as there has been no direct word from Rajapaksa on his plans. Lahiru Wirasakera, a national organizer for youth change, was one of them. If they don't leave on the 13th, what will happen is the people will decide to storm wherever they are hiding now. Recently, the parliament has not been making the decisions that they should be making. At the party leaders' meeting, they have decided that the president and the prime minister should resign. What we are asking is, what was the reason they couldn't make that decision earlier? If the people's representatives are on the side of the people, why couldn't they do this earlier? The ongoing political instability could hurt the country's negotiations with the IMF for a bailout package, the central bank governor told Reuters in an interview. 
The sweeping protests coupled with the pandemic have hammered the tourism-reliant economy. The country has been hit by soaring inflation, currency depreciation, rolling power cuts and terrible fuel shortages. However, Colombo felt calmer on Monday as people strolled into the president's residence and toured the colonial-era buildings. The police made no attempt to stop anyone. The crisis-hit nation barely has any dollars left to import fuel, which has been rationed to essential journeys for buses and trains. Meanwhile, long lines continue outside for petrol stations. That's Laila Sharok Shahi of Reuters. A political vacuum continues in Sri Lanka with the opposition leaders yet to agree on who should replace its roundly rejected leaders whose residences are occupied by protesters angry about the country's deep economic woes. Opposition protesters are demanding to be allowed to nominate candidates. A request analysts say may delay the emergence of new leaders and further create tensions. For more on the task of forming a new government, I spoke with VOS East Asia correspondent Luke Hunt. There's been a couple of names that have come through who might lead an all-party government. One of them is Field Marshal Surat Fonseca, who has been in Parliament for quite some time, and he's considered a bit of a contender. Surprisingly, so is Renil Rekmanasang, who was the former Prime Minister and whose house was set ablaze on Saturday night. He is a former opposition leader, and he was brought in by the previous president to try and add some balance to a government which he was obviously losing control of quite quickly. Now, where that goes next, we don't really know, and we won't know probably until Thursday. On Wednesday, Gotabaya Ratchapaksa is expected to stand down. And I think it will be at least another couple of days before we find out who can take over as an interim leader and lead some kind of negotiations with the IMF. What about the protesters? Is the protest still going on? Or now that they've gotten the Prime Minister and eventually the President to resign, have they gone back home? Mm-hmm. No, they have not. I mean, the protesters are still holed up at the Presidential Palace and at the residence. And what they're doing is they're saying we're not leaving until Gotabayo stands down. Now, that's obviously at least until Wednesday. What is happening is there are thousands of people streaming through the palace and the residence and just taking a look at how these people lived, which, okay, it was always by the public purse, but it stands in a stark contrast to the way many Sri Lankans have been living in recent months, and perhaps even longer over the last couple of years, where hyperinflation has taken over, they can't afford the daily foodstuffs, they can't get petrol, and people are just streaming through and they're having picnics on the lawn. There are mothers and fathers and grandmothers and their children, and it's like a more like a festival at the moment. And while they're doing this, what are the security forces doing? The security forces are doing their job. They're standing guard, they're pretty well armed, they've been quite convivial. You, know, you walk past and it's good morning, good morning, and they're keeping an eye on things, but they're certainly not getting in anyone's way, and they're allowing people to do this. No obstacles to this whatsoever. That's VOA East Asia correspondent Luke Hunt speaking with me from Colombo, Sri Lanka. In his planned visit to the Middle East, President Joe Biden is set to push for Israel's deeper integration into the region and urge Persian Gulf countries to pump more oil to alleviate pressures on the global energy market. Observers will watch how Biden balances this U.S. interest with American values of human rights in light of the killings of journalist Jamal Khashoggi and Sharin Abu Akleh. VOA White House Bureau Chief Patsy Weda-Skuwara has the story. 
President Joe Biden is set to begin his Middle East trip with a tour of Israeli air defense systems. His administration is pushing to deepen security ties between Israel and its Arab neighbors, including integrating their air defense systems to counter the Iranian threat. John Kirby is coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. Bilaterally, we're talking with nations across the region about uh, air defense capabilities specifically and what we can do to assist with with their air defense, and then and then exploring the idea of, of being able to kind of integrate all those air defenses together. A task made more challenging as the Israelis are now under a caretaker government. From Tel Aviv, Biden will fly directly to Jeddah, a first for an American president. It's another sign from the Saudis, who have withheld recognition of Israel over its Palestinian occupation. Yasmin Farouk is a non-resident scholar in the Middle East program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. But we also know that the Saudis have made concessions and have even dealt with the Israelis uh, behind closed doors and not publicly. So uh, if if going public with this um, is um, you know, the message that the Biden administration would like to send, that this is not possible, that progress is being made. Yes, but let's not take it too far into saying that this is the first step towards normalization. In Jeddah, Biden will meet leaders of the Gulf states, plus Egypt, Iraq and Jordan, to offer security assurances while asking to increase burden sharing at a time when Washington is focused on the Ukraine war and the China threat. He'll urge an extension of the ceasefire in Yemen, and push producing countries to pump more oil to lower skyrocketing prices triggered by the war in Ukraine. He must balance the strategic interest of working with authoritarian regimes with American values like human rights. Brian Katulis is a senior fellow and vice president of policy at the Middle East Institute. It's important for America to, to continue to raise these in ways, in part because of that competition with China and Russia. Certainly Putin or Xi are, are not raising the, 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 the cases of women's rights activists in Saudi Arabia. It's not a priority for them. And I do think since America still is the preferred security partner, we have some leverage that we could use to have a constructive conversation. Still, activists have criticized Biden's plans to meet King Salman and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and repairing ties with Saudi Arabia, a country he once called a pariah, including the fiancé of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist murdered with the prince's approval. When Biden meets Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank to reaffirm support for the two-state solution, observers will also watch how he handles the case of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, who, according to U.S. experts, likely died by an Israeli bullet. Patsy Widakuswara, VOA News at the White House. In other news, Graham Brady, a head of the powerful group of conservative legislators known as the 1992 Committee, on Monday says he expects UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's successors to be announced on 5th September. Brady told reporters in Westminster that nominations will officially open and close on Tuesday. The first round of voting will take place Wednesday and the second on Thursday with candidates who fail to get at least 30 votes eliminated at each round. Candidates will need to be nominated by at least 20 lawmakers to get into the first ballot a number that may knock out some contenders before voting even starts. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua in Washington.
The directors of British and U.S. intelligence services say businesses should not underestimate Beijing's commitment to use espionage to steal intellectual property. At issue, balancing the need for foreign-born research talents to maintain an innovative edge over China while protecting national and economic security. VOA's Jessica Stone reports. As Washington lawmakers debate ways to give America the edge in the technology race with China, U.S. research universities are on the front lines. Studies show more than three out of four international scholars are conducting scientific research here. The U.S. lacks enough homegrown science graduates to do the work. Carrie Bingen is the former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. She's one of 18 former U.S. national security officials who signed this letter calling on Congress to lift limits on immigrants with advanced degrees in science and technology. But security experts say Beijing actively exploits America's reliance on foreign talent. 58-year-old Ohio State professor Song Guo Zheng admitted he hid his involvement in Chinese talent recruitment efforts so he could use millions in U.S. government grants to develop China's medical expertise. He's now serving three years in prison. FBI Director Christopher Wray issued an urgent warning to businesses in a joint appearance with the chief of Britain's domestic intelligence agency, MI5. The Chinese government is set on stealing your technology. Whatever it is that makes your industry tick and using it to undercut your business and dominate your market. Beijing had an immediate response. This intelligence official's remarks fully expose his deep-rooted Cold War mentality and ideological prejudice. Former Education Department advisor Dan Carell says universities and grant-making entities must develop more safeguards to protect sensitive research. Right now, he says, there's no blueprint for vetting international researchers. There really is not a system, honestly, um, for reviewing and certainly not for previewing, right, vetting on the front end, um, uh, how this happens, you know, what people are involved. Experts say developing that system now is critical for America's future. Jessica Stone, VOA News, Washington. The UN Sustainable Development Goals Report 2022 warns global crisis and disasters are putting in jeopardy, attainment by the end of the decade of the 17 goals adopted by UN member states in 2015. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Information in the report issued this week from more than 200 countries indicates COVID-19, climate change, and proliferating conflicts are having a devastating impact on efforts to end poverty and hunger and improve global health and security. Assistant Director of the UN Statistics Division, Francesca Perucci, says COVID-19 has wiped out more than four years of progress in alleviating poverty. She says the pandemic has pushed 93 million more people into extreme poverty and many more into acute hunger. She says the increase in the number and global spread of conflicts, the largest since 1946, has forced more than 100 million people from their homes. The Ukraine crisis has caused food, fuel and fertilizer prices to skyrocket further disrupted supply chains and global trade, royal financial markets, and threatened global food security and aid flows. Humanity is also on the verge of a climate catastrophe. 
with impacts already being witnessed and felt by billions of people across the world. Scientists say greenhouse gas emissions rose by a record 6% last year. To avoid the worst impacts of climate change, they say carbon dioxide emissions must peak before 2025, decline 43% by 2030, and fall to net zero by 2050. Scientists warn voluntary national commitments to cut greenhouse gas emissions are insufficient to meet this goal. Instead, they say those commitments will lead to a rise of nearly 14% in CO2 emissions over the next decade. Perucci says the brunt of these global crises will be felt by the poorest and most vulnerable people. Women struggle with the constraints of lost jobs and livelihoods derailed schooling, and increased burden of unpaid care work at home. Meanwhile, existing evidence suggests that violence against women and girls has been exacerbated by the pandemic, and child labor and child marriage are on the rise. UN officials say solutions can be found in strengthening social protection systems and addressing the root causes of increasing inequality. They say investing in clean energy can improve chances of reducing global warming and stress the need for collective action and political commitment. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Hey there, it's Shauna Renee, also known as the Lady DJ, inviting you to join me every Thursday at 10 and 2200 UTC for today's hit countdown. Each week, I count down the top 20 songs in pop music according to Billboard and Rolling Stone magazines, but more importantly, according to you, the VOA listeners. Again, that's Thursdays at 10 and 2200 UTC right here on VOA1. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, Thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinedua in Washington. Have a great day. An editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. In 2022, the DPRK has launched 31 ballistic missiles, including six intercontinental ballistic missiles, an intermediate-range ballistic missile, and at least two claimed hypersonic glide vehicles. All these launches violated multiple UN Security Council resolutions. In addition, reports indicate that Pyongyang is preparing to conduct a nuclear test for the first time in five years.
In the face of these provocations, the United States introduced a resolution at the Security Council in May, strengthening sanctions on the DPRK over its ballistic missile launches. However, for the first time in 15 years, a dangerous division occurred in the Security Council regarding the DPRK. While 13 members voted in favor of the resolution, Russia and the People's Republic of China, two permanent members of the Council, voted to veto it, ensuring its defeat. On June 8th, at a discussion of the UN General Assembly over the vetoes cast by Russia and the PRC, Ambassador Jeffrey De Laurentiis, senior advisor for political affairs at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations, said the vetoes showed implicit approval of the DPRK's dangerous and destabilizing actions. Thirteen council members chose to send a strong message to the DPRK that its unlawful WMD and ballistic missile development will not be tolerated and to send a signal to all proliferators that there should be consequences for their behavior. Two did not. Ambassador de Laurentiis noted that earlier this year, Russia and the PRC pledged a no-limits partnership. We hope these vetoes are not a reflection of a partnership elevated above the collective interest of this body or of the multilateral institutions mandated to ensure the safety and security of us all, he said. The United States has repeatedly made clear that it seeks dialogue with Pyongyang without preconditions, and the commitment to a diplomatic path with the DPRK remains. The United States has also made clear that, together with its allies, it will maintain a strong deterrent capacity and will seek implementation of all multilateral and unilateral sanctions. At the UN, Ambassador de Laurentiis declared the United States will continue to work regularly, diligently, and transparently with the Security Council, our allies and partners, and all member states who seek to stop the DPRK's unlawful WMD and ballistic missile programs and uphold the values of non-proliferation. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 